this? That we can stand before God today free in him. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And the fact that we have God's word to open up, what a gift it is that we have this treasure from God, directly from God to us. Amazing. So let me invite you to to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to be talking about the life of Saul again. And I want to ask you this question. What comes to your mind when you think of what bold faith is? Like what, do you, what does bold faith mean to you? Is there a, a person that you think about who displayed such faith? Is, is it a characteristic that defines that for you? Certainly my prayer for all of us is that we would all be bold witnesses. We're all capable of that. This is certainly not about a personality that makes us bold. And there are so many saints that have gone before us who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. I think of John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Lord and what happened to him. He was beheaded for following after Christ. We've already looked at Stephen who preached the gospel and right afterwards was stoned to death for it. And if you look at the history of all of the apostles, they were all martyred for their faith except for John. And he had it easy because he was only tarred and feathered and put on a remote island, not what I would call a vacation. I think of John Wycliffe and William Tyndale who were burned at the stake for translating the Bible so that the common people would have the scriptures in their own language. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was hung for standing up against the Nazi regime and also the churches who had fallen victim to the regime's teachings. But we all realize, right, that martyrdom is is not something of the past. Do you realize that every year an estimated 100,000 Christians lose their lives because of their choice to follow Christ? What makes for such a bold witness? What is it in in their lives that make them willing to give it all up for them? Well, we're going to look at the life of Saul here and we're going to see four marks of a bold witness. So follow along with me as we read now Acts 9 starting in the second half of verse 19. For some days... He was with the disciples at Damascus. This is Saul he's talking, it's talking about here. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Saul, Lord, who you radically transformed. Nothing in and of Saul made him worthy of salvation. Rather, Lord, he was worthy of condemnation of the greatest kind, for he was killing your own people. And yet, you chose to display your mercy in his life. What a testimony to us, Lord, for those who feel like they were without hope who feel like they've gone too far. Lord, where our sin is many, your mercy is more. God, thank you for that. And Lord, thank you for the bold witness that Saul was. And Lord, I pray that you would protect us to think that that bold witness is for somebody else, Lord. Protect us from thinking that we are incapable of being a bold witness for you, for it has nothing to do with personality. It has nothing to do with whether we're introverted or extroverted. It has everything to do with where we place our faith in or what we place our faith in or who. So, Lord, would you encourage us this morning, Lord, that we would desire to proclaim you to the lost in our world. Lord, help us to know that you have given us what we need to be a bold witness. Lord, thank you for your word, for your encouragement that you have not left us on our own, Lord. You have given us a great tool. And so, Lord, we need you now. Open our hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about marks of a bold witness. And what a story we have in Saul. Arguably, one of the greatest adversaries in all of Scripture becomes the greatest advocate for Christ. What an amazing turnaround. And it took place literally overnight On the road to Damascus where the light shone on him and God showed up and convicted him of his sins. And he repented and placed his faith in him. Now typically we would handle a guy like Saul differently than what takes place here. And I I see nothing wrong with the way we would handle it. I mean I would like to get Saul connected probably in a one-on-one relationship. This guy has just been saved there's a whole new faith that he, we want him to learn. And so typically what we would do with a person like that is get him into some kind of one-on-one discipleship to help him grow in his faith. We'd want him to learn about the ways of the Lord. Make sure he has a copy of God's word. And before he does anything in the church, for the church, let's help him get acclimated to his new life in Christ. Is, but is that what happens with Paul here, with Saul here? Immediately, what is he doing? <laughs> He's preaching. He's going to the synagogues and preaching. Certainly it's important to understand that that these were different times than what we have today. Now, there weren't preachers on every corner. There weren't churches all around. Christianity was very new and fresh. And so Saul was uniquely gifted, wasn't he? He was already used to talking about Jesus in the synagogues, was he not? 
Like he was a Jew. He was a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he was already in the temples talking about Jesus, but he was on the other side. But now things have flipped for him. Now, instead, he's helping people understand who Jesus is. He now is boldly proclaiming the gospel to the fellow Jews in Damascus. And it's in these first few verses that we see the first mark of a bold witness, and it's this. A bold witness is Christ-centered. A bold witness is Christ-centered. Look again at verse 20. As we've already talked about here, immediately the first thing that he does is proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He is saying that he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And this left the people stunned. Like, who is this man? He was just persecuting Christians. He was pulling men and women out and arresting them. He was there approving the stoning of Stephen. And now he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord? Look at what it says in verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? What was the message that Saul delivered here? It was a Christ-centered message. And his message was that Jesus was the Son of God. Now certainly we hear that statement and we might immediately think of like a reference to who someone's parents is, right? And we don't really talk that way. It would be common for them to say, hey, I'm so-and-so, son of so-and-so. I am the son of Steve. That means nothing to you guys. You don't know who my dad is. And so that means nothing. It's got no understanding. You have no reference. Usually we say, hey, I'm Ben. I'm from Niles, Michigan. That's where I'm from. That's kind of how we talk. Uh, back then they would say, my name is blank and I'm son of so-and-so. But for him to say he is the son of God is not like saying who his parents are. This would be blasphemy in the ears of the Jews because the Jews did not believe that any human being could be the son of God. It would have to be the son of a human that they knew of, they, they have heard of. And so this was blasphemous in the eyes of the Jews. But here's the thing. They didn't understand that Jesus, his father, was God. And in fact, when Saul is saying that he was the son of God, what he's saying is that Jesus was God. His very character was God. Everything about him, he was God. This was a massive statement that Saul was making here. And it is one for us as well that Jesus was no mortal man, was he? He was not a good person like some people have to like to say, that Jesus was just a good person. And he was a good teacher. He was a good rabbi. No, he wasn't. He was far more than that. Jesus is God. And if we want to be a bold witness, it starts with us being Christ-centered. So what are the implications of Christ being the Son of God? What does that mean exactly for us? It means that Jesus has all the authority that God has. He is sovereign. He is in control. Jesus gets to call the shots. 
And so this makes us all accountable to him, doesn't it? We are all held accountable to Jesus. So let's talk about salvation and how offensive that would have been to the Jews of Saul's time. What was Jesus' message concerning salvation? What, what was his proclamation? He said that I am a way, a truth. Is that what he said? No, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had a clear salvation. Salvation only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way by which a man is saved. Was that the way the Jews saw it? No, that's why the mess was taking place, is because they had a different form of salvation. They had built for themselves a list of laws that everyone must follow in order to earn salvation. They very much operated out of a work-based salvation. They weren't Christ-centered whatsoever. Christ was nowhere near the center. Christ was who they murdered on a cross. They thought the more good things you did, the better you were and the better seat in heaven you would have. It was all about merit for the Jews. And they would make up whatever laws they wanted in order to make themselves feel better. But the crazy part is, is even the own laws that they came up with, they didn't fully follow. But they put this burden on the backs of everybody else, didn't they? Let me ask you this. Would you say that we live in a works-based world today? As we view the systems of the world, do we tend to look at people based on their resumes more than anything else? Who gets the most attention in the world today? Is it not those who have a certain kind of outward physical talent that we love, that we cherish? Consider the church. I mean, it seems like every other week we are hearing of another pastor who's fallen. These megachurch pastors who have this great gift of preaching and leading and they're strong, but they end up falling out of ministry because of some kind of moral failure from pride, from overbearing leadership. The problem is they weren't looking at their character. It was all about the exterior. It was all about what they could see on the outside. And the world certainly operates on the same way. How about you as parents? Do you treat your kids better or worse based on their performance? They bring home good grades, and so we praise them. They bring home not so good grades, and so we scold them and treat them differently. They excel at sports. Do we love those kids who excel at sports more so than those who don't? See, we as parents can find ourselves in the same boat where we treat our kids differently based on their performance. And what happens in the world if you make a mistake 20 years ago? Do you not find it like crazy if you think about it? Like they're digging up stuff that took place 20 years ago and condemning them today when that person is probably far different than they were 20 years ago? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, would be thoroughly embarrassed if today we brought up your past 20 years of your life? How many of you would be ready to just walk out the door and be done? The world very much operates on a works-based message. But to be Christ-centered is to preach a different message altogether, isn't it? It's a message 
That's not based on works. We are not saved by works. Rather, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Jesus came because we couldn't perform well enough to overcome our sinfulness. We will never be good enough. Listen to that. If you think somehow God is, you're not right with God today because you haven't performed well enough, let me free you to help you understand you will never be good enough. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came while we were still sinners. We weren't all around looking for Jesus. We weren't born in this world with a heart as a seeker of Jesus. We were seeking something, but we weren't seeking Jesus. There was a form of Jesus that we wanted, but we didn't know what we wanted because we're selfish. We're born sinful. But it's when Jesus intercedes and takes the blinders off and exposes us to our sin. It's him that does that. Conviction of sin comes from God's grace. It comes from him opening our eyes. That's the Christ-centered message. That's the message the world needs to see. Hey, listen, you don't have to perform. You don't have to be good enough because you never will. Free yourself from those expectations. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So believer, are you Christ-centered? Are you Christ-centered in your personal life when no one else is around, when the TV screen is on? Are you Christ-centered in your marriage? Do you treat your spouse with love and grace and mercy, understanding that when we say, I do, to our spouse, what we're saying is, I'm going to forgive you for a lifetime. Some big moments, many small moments. But marriage is built off of forgiveness. Being a forgiving person is being Christ-centered. It's a message saying that I don't expect you to perform because Jesus doesn't expect me to perform. In your parenting, are you Christ-centered? How about your neighborhood? Or here, how about this? How about your job? Is Christ reflected in the way that you do your job? Whether you hate it or not, whether you like your boss or not. Do you live your life in such a way that is Christ-centered? A bold witness is Christ-centered. Look at verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of your... Oh, wrong chapter there. <laughs> That's a good message, though. Repent. That's a good one. <laughs> Acts 9.22 says this. But Saul increased all the more in strength... And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So notice, despite the questions and threats, Paul keeps Saul keeps at it, leaning into Christ. He's being built up in him. He goes on preaching, and it leaves the Jews dumbfounded, as we talked about. They can no longer have any reasonable arguments with Saul. And what happens when someone refuses to change what they believe, even though they have no defense? What usually happens? It's usually persecution, right? Arguments, fights. Whoever can be the loudest, you see that in the world today? (laughs) 
It's whoever could be the most obnoxious. Like, okay, I can't win this argument, so I'm just going to be obnoxious and loud. That tends to be what happens when that's the case. And so they threaten him. And the threats become so severe that they have to help Saul escape. Now, the only way in and out of the city is through gates. You see they're watching him day and night. They're watching the gates. And so this was a city that was surrounded by walls. And the only way in and out were through gates. But they did have these windows on the outside of these walls. And so what happens is in the, in the dark of the night, they lower Saul out and allow him to escape. And I think it's worth noting here that martyrdom doesn't have to be the only choice. Paul, Saul didn't run away from what he should have done by sparing his life. Like, we should understand that like, we don't have to die for, if there's a way out, we don't have to die for our faith. It's okay to make that choice to live. Another thing I want you to see here is that the text is moving much faster than real time here. So keep a mark here, and I want you to turn to Galatians 1. We're going to come back to Acts, but turn to Galatians 1 with me real, real quick. I want you to help you see that what happened here, this is over a matter of a few years, actually. This isn't something that just took place overnight, and he's in Damascus, and next thing you know, he's traveling to, back to Jerusalem. So Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then notice verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So here's what I want you to notice. In verse 23 of Acts chapter 9, we see that many days had passed. Then, in verse 26, where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. So what's the time frame here between Damascus and Jerusalem? It's three plus years. It's three plus years. Here's, here's what I take away from that. Here's the next mark of a bold witness. It's this. A bold witness is Christ-fueled. A bold witness is Christ-fueled. If I were to ask you, what is the most important relationship in your life, what would you say? What matters most of everything? It's our relationship with Christ, right? No other relationship compares to that. Nothing is more important than our relationship with Jesus. Not our relationship with our parents, not with our spouse, not with our children. It's our relationship with Christ. And Saul took time away in order to grow in his relationship with the Savior. Three years he was away in order to grow up in the Lord. Now, he was a very intelligent man, was he not? Saul was very smart. He was advancing far above people his own age, it says. 
but it wasn't his intellect that would sustain him for all that he would endure in the coming years. His bold witness was an overflow of his relationship with Christ. He loved his Savior. He spent time away from everything in order to grow deeper into Christ. It wasn't his intellect that made him a bold witness. It was his relationship with Jesus. And in Philippians, what did Saul say? To live is Christ and to die is what? Truly gain. He wanted to be with his Savior. He loved him. He was not compelled by his own flesh to go share the gospel. He was compelled out of the love for Jesus. And later in in chapter 21 of Acts, Saul says this in verse 13. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. If we want to be a great witness for the Lord, it must overflow out of a heart that abides in Christ. Consider what John Piper said. Don't wait for a feeling or love in order to share Christ with a stranger. You already love your heavenly Father, and you know that this stranger is created by him, but separated from him. So, take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. It is not primarily out of compassion that we share our faith or pray for the lost. It is, first of all, love for God. So the question comes down to this. Do you love your Savior? Are you abiding in Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Apart from a love for Jesus, there will be no lasting bold witness. I mean, think about this. How many of you are willing to lay down your life over an intellectual discussion? Or do you not just say, you know, this isn't worth it. I'm out. Now imagine this. Life of one of your family members in danger. How many of you would step in and be willing to give your life in order to save your loved one? I imagine plenty of us would find ourselves there. Plenty of us would give our lives for our loved one. Why? Because we love that person. And so the more we love for Jesus, the more we love him, the more we understand the grace that he brings, the peace that he provides, the more we want others to experience it. And the more we are willing to suffer because we want them to experience the same thing with Christ that we have because we love our Savior. A bold witness is Christ-fueled. It must come and overflow out of a heart that loves Christ. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. (laughs) What a tough spot for Saul, right? And he went from being respected by Jews to really having nobody. (laughs) All of a sudden, he's like enemies all around him. 
And here he is returning to Jerusalem. It's been three years since he's been there. And the last time he was there, he was persecuting Christians. He was there approving the stoning of Stephen. He's arresting men and women who followed Jesus. And all the disciples are still doubtful and extremely uneasy about Saul's professed faith. But then Barnabas shows up. And he intervenes for Saul. Now, the first time we heard of Barnabas was back in chapter 4. If you remember Ananias and Sapphira, who had brought and, and lied about how much they had sold their property for. Well, Barnabas, right before that, had sold all of his property and given the money in order uh, to help those who were in need. And we saw there that Barnabas means son of encouragement. And here he is being a huge encouragement by going to the apostles with Saul and intervening and explaining what had taken place in Saul's life and that indeed his salvation was genuine. And so our third mark of boldness that we see here is this. A bold witness doesn't go alone. A bold witness doesn't go alone. Often when we think of Saul slash Paul, we think of a strong man, a bold man, and he wrote much of the New Testament after all. We even use the analogy that everybody needs a Paul in their life. It can be tempting to think that he didn't need any help. But the truth is, he could have never done it alone. And I think Barnabas's today are very underrated, don't you? You know, too often people want to be Saul. They want to be center stage. They want to take the platform. They want to be known. They want to be loved. Now, certainly God calls people to be preachers, but we can all be Barnabas's, can't we? We can all be encouragers. And I can tell you, I would not be here today if it wasn't for many Barnabases in my life, many of you with your encouraging words that you've given. And how many of you have experienced that when you're at your lowest and God brings an encouraging word from somebody? Man, I would just pause here and say, if, if you ever find yourself encouraged by someone, if you even, it pops in my mind all the time just out of the blue where I'm just, you know what, I'm so thankful for that person. Let me encourage you to make sure that you let them know. Encouragement goes a long way, and we cannot do this on our own. We were not created to be silos. God saves us not so that we can have our own relationship with Jesus, just me and Jesus. You've heard me talk about this before. Some people think, I don't need the church. I have Jesus, just me and my buddy. We're good. I don't need anybody else. If that were the case, then we wouldn't see 59 commands in the New Testament of how we are to do life together with one another. 59 times we are commanded, exhorted to live life with one another. Consider what some of those things are. Love one another. Be at peace with one another. Be devoted to one another, even when things are hard. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment of one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Clearly, we can't do this alone. And you even look into the psychological studies out there. 
what isolation does to a person. Damaging. It's because God created us to be a part of a community. So my question this morning for you is, are you actively part of a gospel community? Now, I'm not talking about you come here on Sundays and sit and then leave. If that's all the community you have, I fear for you, brothers and sisters. I don't say this in judgment because I want you to come and be a part of what we're doing here. The, the reason why we have small groups, the reason why we gather to pray is not because, hey, we want to have all these programs, we want to get a church big. The reason we have small groups is because I need people in my life. I need brothers and sisters who know me well, who know me better. You can't possibly know me up on the stage here. You get mostly the best of me. Sometimes you hear some quirky stories of who I am, but you don't know who I am. But you know what? As I'm walking life with Eric and Heather in our small group, they're getting to know me better. And they're able to call me out when I need to be called out. And you know what? They're able to encourage me when I'm discouraged and vice versa. I'm able to pour into them. We need each other. We don't do small groups because that's, that's what the newest thing is to do. We do small groups because we realize all these one another's can't happen on a Sunday morning. So that's why we gather together. Are you committed to gospel community? We have the opportunity tonight to gather to pray. Why? Because we just want to have a prayer meeting? No, because we're desperate. The attacks that happen on the church, we don't even often understand and know. But do you think Satan wants this thing to happen? Do you think Satan wants us to go out there and be a bold witness for him? Or is he not going to try to like tweak? And you know what? The way he... What he said the other day or what this person said in small group or the way they responded to me. and I'm, I'm, we, we can get so twisted in the way we view one another because Satan is at work. It doesn't mean that we aren't confronting one another when we sin against one another. But so many times people get burned and they just leave the church without even trying to have a discussion and understand what's going on. And most of the time it's miscommunication. We need one another. We cannot do this alone. So we'll see you here at 5 p.m. to pray. <laughs> Look at verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the last mark that we see is this. A bold witness is prepared to suffer. A bold witness is prepared to suffer. Now from the start of Saul's conversion, he's faced with death threats, isn't he? In verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. Even when he comes back to Jerusalem, he experiences some suffering by being rejected by the disciples, saying, no, that ain't true, there's no way. I know what you did. And then again, here in verse 29, the Hellenists are seeking a way to kill him. But none of this stopped Saul from preaching the gospel. He was prepared to suffer. There were no disillusionments to think life would be easy after salvation. And isn't that what gets people sidetracked sometimes? They think, well, Jesus is going to make my life easy. He's going to come in and it's going to all be great, no problems, prosperity. And often what happens is that we experience more suffering than what we did beforehand. But here's the thing. 
even in the suffering, there's far more joy in that. That's what I've come to, to experience. I mean, first of all, you're, you're opening the doors to an enemy who all of a sudden is taking notice of you wanting to share the gospel, wanting to get up and read the word, wanting to raise your kids in the admonition of the Lord. And all of these things start getting in the way. Because when you live for yourself, you can do whatever you want to. But when you want to live for the Lord, now you have an enemy coming. We must be prepared to suffer. I don't have this on the screen, but Thomas Merton said this about suffering. The truth that many people never understand until it is too late is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. Isn't isn't that true? Like the more we try to avoid suffering because we think somehow we can find utopia here on earth, everything gets in the way, doesn't it? When we are just looking and longing for peace on earth, as a parent, you just like long to like have some time at night to, okay, I just need to relax. And then every 15 minutes, some kid is coming out needing something. I need to go to the bathroom. I need a drink. I'm scared. Like, and you just can't find that peace. But if that's our idol, if that's what we're longing for, everything gets in the way. And we suffer more because we're so agitated by everything getting in the way. But when we realize, man, we are here to live for the Lord. We are here to proclaim his glory. All of a sudden, we realize that the obstacles that come in the way aren't really obstacles at all. They're opportunities. <laughs> For us to grow up in the Lord, a bold witness is prepared to suffer. Our Savior himself warned us, didn't he? He said this, in this world you will have trouble, but what? Take heart, I will have overcome the world. Christians, when we start living our lives in a Christ-centered manner, Christ-fueled. Don't be surprised that suffering follows. Jesus warned us that that would take place. But remember, he's overcome the world. The world can take your life, but he can't take your eternity. These momentary afflictions is what Saul said are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Anything that you face here isn't worth comparing to the joy that awaits us. Don't let the suffering that may come from you being a bold witness keep you from doing that. Understanding that our treasure lies in heaven where neither rust nor moth can destroy. No one can take away your joy. But here's the thing. We can still find joy here on this earth. And in verse 31, we'll end with this. We see the results of a bold witness. When we proclaim Jesus Christ, these are the things that we can expect to follow. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. When we decide to be the people of God that is Christ-centered, that we proclaim Jesus, not a salvation by works, not a stop doing this, don't do that, do this, and start pointing people just to Jesus. When we have a relationship with Christ, that we love him 
and the overflow of our hearts becomes a witness to him, when we are a bold witness through being Christ-fueled, when we understand that a bold witness doesn't go alone and we realize that we need one another and we stop isolating ourselves, and when we understand that being a bold witness is going to be a place where we suffer, we will start to see results like this. Verse 31, they had peace. Is it true that when we are living in this way, there's peace in our lives? And where there's peace, there's a place of being built up. When we're seeking the Lord, when we're Christ-centered, then we're fearing the Lord. Fear is not, I'm afraid you might strike me down. Fear is like this all reverence of him. Like this is love, respect, relationship where we bow down and just because we're unworthy. But even in our unworthiness, we realize that Jesus saved us. And so it's this complexing emotion of awe and love mingled together. With the fear of the Lord comes the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You feeling the comfort of the Lord when we are pursuing Him, when we are in relationship with Him, we receive comfort. We understand that God's promises are yes and amen. And with that, we can expect to see the church grow. I don't care about the size of our church here. My heart is that I would see you built up in Christ and that we would go out, that we would be a bold witness and that we would see people who are lost repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's my heart. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to spend time this week seeking the Lord. How can you be a bold witness? It's not about your tone. It's not about your personality. It's not about being extroverted. It's all about who you know. It's all about the message that you proclaim. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that it brings us. Thank you for the example of Saul. Lord, I pray that you would help us realize that we can be this bold witness. Not anything in and of ourselves. Lord, not a bold witness by being loud. But just by growing in you, God, may you, may you fill us with such love for you that we can't help but want to share it. Lord, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If we've tasted and seen that, Lord, let us help other people see that what they're going after are empty vessels. They don't satisfy. They don't fill. But, Lord, you bring peace. You bring comfort. God, let us be bold witnesses for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we close out, let me leave you with uh, some action steps that you can be putting into practice this week to further think about this idea of being a bold witness for Christ. 1 Peter 3, 15. Let me encourage you to, to take time, if you don't have that memorized, to memorize it. Here's what it says. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Not to win an argument. Don't be ready to give an answer so that you sound smart. Get ready to have an answer because you have hope. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. Something vastly missing in our world today. I encourage you to read 1 Timothy 2. Last week we had 1 Timothy 1. This week 1 Timothy 2 just talks about being a bold witness. I encourage you to just read through that. Study that a little bit more. Third thing, if you're not already doing so, praise God. So many of you are either in small groups or we're in the process. I know some of you have put requests. Please know those are heard. And we are looking to get you connected if you're not. But commit to gospel community. Be a part of other believers. Come tonight. It's not convenient to come at Sunday night at 5 p.m. The week is coming. It's Thanksgiving. you got a lot of stuff coming. I mean, some of you are thinking, oh, man, Thanksgiving is hard. Family's around. Okay, what a great opportunity to come and pray. <laughs> Prepare our hearts. For, for If that's where you find yourself, of being around family and anxiety that comes, why would you not come to pray? Listen, it's not convenient. We don't come to God when it's convenient. We come to God because we're desperate for him. So commit to gospel community and And if you're able to come tonight, we'd love for you to be a part of that. And then the last thing there, be ready to suffer. Just be aware that when you choose to follow the Lord, you have an enemy that's coming after you. And things aren't going to be easy. That first step where you're like, man, I need to get back in the word. I guarantee if it's in the morning, that's going to be the longest night of your life. It always happens. But keep at it. Keep at it. Keep seeking the Lord. And just understand you're going to suffer. And there are going to be people who reject you because you choose to follow Jesus. Don't be surprised at the fire trials or something strange were happening to you. Be ready to suffer. That's, that's, that will help you go a long way of understanding that heaven, it doesn't come on this side of eternity. Well, let me encourage you now to, we'd love for you to stay out after for some fellowship. Uh, those back three rows on this side, we're going to take those chairs down, FYI. So give us about ten minutes and we'll have coffee and donuts ready. Grab your kids, come back here, come hang out. And, and also, if I don't get a chance to say this, have a happy Thanksgiving. Make sure you take time to thank the Lord for his many mercies and his grace towards you.